Aducanumab, which was recently approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's disease, has a list price of $56,000 a year. Because of the size of the affected patient population, the drug could have a substantial budgetary impact on both public and private insurers. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with James Robinson, a professor of health economics at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. Dr. Robinson has written a perspective article about aducanumab and the structural factors responsible for high drug prices. Dr. Robinson, what do we know about why Biogen chose this list price for aducanumab? And what's the response been among payers and healthcare systems? Well, of course, only Biogen knows exactly why it picked $56,000, but we can speculate starting with the really the characteristics of the drug. First and foremost, this is an infused, office-infused drug, and therefore it is covered under Part B for Medicare and under the, the medical benefit for the private insurers. Second factor of this related to that is that this drug is distributed largely through what's called the buy and bill mechanism, by which doctors, offices, and hospitals purchase the drug from distributors, administer to the patient, and then bill the insurer or Medicare for reimbursement. And the amount that they bill for reimbursement can be substantially higher than the amount that they actually have to pay the distributor for the drug. So there's a drug margin there, which is very substantial in some cases. And the third feature of this is that it is a drug that's largely going to be taken by Medicare patients because they're the elderly. And so what we really need to look at in trying to understand it is the pricing and distribution, and also consumer cost-sharing mechanisms for Medicare patients primarily. So looking at those in more detail, you talk about the issue of how physicians are paid for office-infused drugs. Why has reimbursement been set as a percentage of a drug's acquisition price? And what are the implications of that policy? Well, I think that it's a historical artifact. Of course, normally doctors and hospitals are paid on the basis of fee schedules and DRGs, things of that nature. But for expensive inputs like certain drugs, they're paid independently for the drug. And someone way back when decided that they needed to have an inventory charge markup in percentage terms. And back when drugs were cheap, it wasn't a big deal. Now that drugs are so expensive, it is a big deal. Medicare pays about a four to 6% markup over the acquisition costs. Private insurers pay about 10 to 20% markups and hospitals obtain a 100 to 200% markup on the price of the drug. So particularly for the hospitals, and many of these drugs are going to be administered in hospital outpatient infusion clinics, this is a major potential moneymaker. So the first concern is, wow, is this giving doctors and hospitals an incentive to infuse more drug or higher doses than is necessary? And or is it to prefer a more expensive drug than a cheaper drug? The main incentive is that there's no reason whatsoever for the manufacturer to engage in any form of price reduction or price discounting, because that will reduce the base against which the physicians and the hospital's markup is calculated. And therefore, they were taking the money right out of the pocket of the doctors and hospitals. And if you're a drug company, taking money away from doctors and hospitals is not the way to go. So looking a bit beyond aducanumab, you argue in your article that therapeutic competition for expensive drugs isn't going to lead to price competition unless physicians and patients see an advantage in using a cheaper option. So why are current cost-sharing requirements not sufficient to encourage exactly that, going to cheaper options? For Medicare beneficiaries uh, under Part B, 
the basic requirement is that they pay 20% coinsurance. And so that means that if you take it on its face, that they pay 20% of the difference between the expensive drug and the cheaper drug. And therefore, that's an incentive to prefer the cheaper drug. That's good. The problem is, is that the whole system works against that. First of all, the manufacturer or an independent foundation financed by the manufacturer is going to pay that 20% difference if it isn't already paid by some sort of wraparound insurance. Remember, a lot of patients on Medicare are also covered by Medicaid, so-called dual eligibles, which would pay that 20%. A lot of them are covered by employer-based retirement health programs, which would cover that 20%. A lot of them are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans, which often will cover that 20%. So that 20% quickly goes away and as a real incentive for the patients. And so I don't see any price competition emerging. It is important to say now that the FDA has approved aducanumab on the, let's call it the thinnest clinical evidence, other drug companies are rushing to markets with other products which have equally thin evidence from the same mechanism of action. So there is going to be the potential for therapeutic substitution, therapeutic, let's call it competition, but I do not see that as resulting in price competition. Because remember, multiple products will only lead to price competition if there is a business case to reduce price. And the business case is always you will sell more of your stuff if you make it cheaper. And that's not the case here. So to address some of these issues, you write in your article that Medicare needs statutory authority to negotiate drug prices, which is something that some politicians have been trying to see happen for a long time. Would the drug price negotiation plans that have been under discussion in Congress recently make a meaningful difference? They could. It's clearly that they're under political pressures and vociferous and fierce lobbying by the pharmaceutical industry. All of those plans are being diluted. The basic idea, though, is to move away from the formula-driven approach that Medicare uses for reimbursing infused drugs under Part B. The way it does it is as follows. Medicare requires all the manufacturers to report to Medicare their list price and all the discounts and rebates they give to anybody. That includes insurers, pharmacy benefit managers, pharmacies, anybody. And then Medicare calculates the average sales price, which is the price that the manufacturer actually receives net of all those discounts. And that number, ASP, is what Medicare uses to pay the providers, the doctors and the hospitals. Remember, the doctors and hospitals are buying the drug from the wholesaler at a lower price. So this ASP rate basically means that Medicare is passively tied to whatever discounts and rebates the private insurers can obtain even though the private insurers are not going to be paying for much of this drug because this isn't overwhelmingly a drug for the elderly. It's a very peculiar situation in which one group of people is setting the price, one group of payers, and the other, which is Medicare and the taxpayer, is actually paying. It's very perverse. Medicare needs the ability to lead the negotiations and let the, the private insurers follow it rather than have the private insurers who have neither the scale nor the sophistication, frankly, to get a good deal on this to lead Medicare. So looking again at this issue of reimbursement for physicians and hospitals, you say that reforming the pricing for infused drugs would require also reforming payment for related professional services. So how broad or how deep is this going to get? Well, it's one of the many sad features of the healthcare system with respect to these drugs is that physician practices, particularly in oncology and immunology, and here in neurology, have become addicted, financially addicted to these drug markups. 
And that has allowed them to expand their practices and do okay financially, even though they are, if I may use the language, underpaid for their professional services. It's like we pay very little for doctors to use what they went to medical school to learn how to do, which is evaluate patients and prescribe drugs. And what we pay them a lot for is actually being drug dispensers. It's like the doctor's office is really some sort of big glorified pharmacy for infused drugs rather than a place of medical care. And so the addiction of these practices to these drug markups is the reason why the so-called buy and bill system has failed. The reform of it has failed politically because the doctors are saying, if you take that away from me, I can't survive financially. So this is all very unfortunate, but it's sort of true that doctors need to get, I'm in favor, by the way, doctors need to get paid more, more for their professional clinical services in this domain of prescribing expensive drugs, but they need to be paid less for the actual selling of the drug. I don't want doctors to be pharmacists. I want doctors to be doctors. Finally, how do you think aducanumab's approval and its price are going to contribute to the federal debates about drug pricing overall? We saw the announcement that Medicare is adjusting upward the Part B premium meaningfully to account for its projections of what the aducanumab spending would be. Now, actual aducanumab spending has been significantly lower than that because on the private payer side, a lot of private plans are flat out refusing to pay for it. That gives the chills to providers because remember, under buy and bill, they first buy it from the drug company and the wholesaler, then they try to get reimbursed. If they don't get reimbursed, they're stuck paying for it themselves. They're very concerned about that. And then, of course, they're also concerned about the thin nature of the clinical evidence. I would say that this drug showed strong biomarker evidence of effect on the particular biomarker but essentially no effect on the patient's cognitive ability when you really cut through all the stuff. And so what it really should have done is based on the biomarker, sponsored some follow-on, some new clinical trials, and let's wait and see what happens to those before we cover it. Or there's one other alternative, which would be to say, okay, they want to cover it now. Medicare needs to or wants to cover it now, but it should be priced at a very low level because the evidence of efficacy is very weak. And then with the follow-on trials, if the evidence of effectiveness improves, then the price should rise back up. I call that pricing with evidence development, and I think it really should be used in this context. Thank you, Dr. Robinson.